But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh by the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit to the Father. So then, you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being himself the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. Please be seated. Thanks, John. <clears throat> Thank you, Amanda, wherever you are. That was great. Well, as John said, um, we are, uh, we're taking a break from Mark, and uh, there is probably been five to six months that we've been going through Mark. And three months ago, we decided to do this race thing. And every single Saturday night, um, when I would prepare for a Sunday morning message, um, this message um, would come to my mind, and I would start thinking of things that I would want to say in this moment. Um, and I don't want to over-dramatize anything that needs to be said. I think Facebook and CNN and Yahoo, they've, they've done a, a, enough of that for us. Um, but just to, to, to make a delineation a, a little bit in how um, some of the, the talks for the, the For the People series in August, September, and October that we're going to talk about, how this topic specifically is a little different. You've you got to kind of understand that with things like ISIS, um, there's this evil, this unequivocal evil. Everyone is on board because it's, it's apparent, it's obvious evil. Um, and even with the, the pro-life stuff, right, um, there, there's this sense of innocence that everyone's willing to get in the water because we want to fight against that um, innocence. But, but when we talk about race, it becomes a lot more muddy um, because um, what, what's happening between specifically black and white people is um, you are seeing your brother or your sister or your mom or your son or your daughter, and that's not as easy to separate um, from, from these other conversations. So, so the race conversation is much different than the other conversations. And um, I'm excited to have it, um, but you, you got to understand, before we have it, there's a couple things that need to be said. First, about myself, um, and then about um, us as a whole, before we get into our text. And then I want to, from there, um, unpack a theology of race um, the best I can. My goal this morning, if this is your first time, you, you need to understand, I, I told your friends not to bring you. Um, because, because, because I, I really wanted this moment to be for um, Christians. And, and I'm glad you're here if you're not. But please understand that everything I'm going to say is from that perspective. And so you, you might disagree with it. And that's okay. Um, but you've got to understand that as Christians, we're, we're going to try to attack um, this idea of racism or, or um, what's going on in, in, in this whole conversation from the Bible. Now, um, the two things that need to happen that I need to say um, are... are 
instrumental in, in how we're going to get out our text. And, and here's the, the, the first one. It's a, uh, actually a list. Um, I'm a, a registered Republican. I, I have uh, libertarian bents. Uh, I, uh, I, uh, it's mainly because Tyler Heald has forced those libertarian bents on me. Um, I, uh, I grew up predominantly around people of color. Uh, um, yeah, I, mo- you know, not just people of color, but people of color who were poor, like me. Both my parents were drug addicts growing up, and so um, we were homeless and uh, spent a lot of time on the streets. And because of, of that, I had a huge animosity growing up towards rich people. When I say rich people, anybody who was wealthier than I, which was pretty much everyone. Um, I remember specifically watching uh, some movie awards show with my dad, and um, watching as the camera kind of panned the audience, because someone had performed, obviously I don't remember, but watching the actors and actresses cry and being like physically upset that they would pretend to cry, because I honestly believe they didn't have emotion. Like they, they live, they were wealthy, like they, they, there was this inhumanness that they didn't understand what was really going on in the world. I, I hated um, rich people. And then... Um, I got saved and ended up uh, going to a church and then working at a church in North Scottsdale. And, um, and, uh, and, and really struggled uh, because the, 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 the paradigms in which some of, um, when I say those people, wealthier people um, were in, I, I, I couldn't relate to. And I've, I've shared this story with some of you, but I remember sitting across as a youth pastor from a girl 16 years old and um, she was just crying, just bawling because her dad had bought her, I think it was the 2007 Elantra instead of the 2008. Like, and I remember thinking, I don't know what to do with you right now. Um, I, I didn't. And, 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 um, and then because I was in that world, I started to see the immense brokenness that wealthy people had. Um, sometimes even worse, you know, there's that famous saying, um, some people are so poor, all they have is money. And I, and I really, you, you started to see, um, the immense brokenness in that it, it was, it was crazy. And, and, and because of that, um, the, that, that upbringing, right. And, and who I knew and having most of my friends be, um, color. I, I remember in, in fourth grade, I, um, had to go to an ESL class because I was the only kid. They didn't know I was an anomaly. I was the only kid who spoke English enough, but all my other friends were Hispanic. Everyone else in my class was Hispanic, and they didn't know what to do with this lowly white kid, and so I'm learning English as a second language. Um, okay? Um, now, 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 with all that, uh, I, I, I would add that um, I would joke with my black friends in ways that some of you would find offensive. Um, I'll watch videos and, and look at memes that some of you in this room might, um, but when I'm sitting with my boys, there are things that will crack up about, about race um, that some of you would be, might be appalled at. And um, I, I'll actually even use the term black more than I will African-American because um, I, I can't get, like, most of my black friends don't, I mean, outside of my African-American friends, we have, Candace and I have a pretty large group of Nigerian friends. I mean, and even then, it's like, this is my African-American friend. They, it's not, so I just use the term, and I'm not trying to be offensive. I, I, uh, I, I don't think at the same time, I don't like the idea of um, February being Black History Month, and I don't like all black colleges. I, I don't think the answer to those things, um, where, where, I, I, where obviously I don't think that we should have black history much because it's a, I don't want black history, I, think, I don't think the answer is swinging the pendulum to isolate, saying, hey, we're giving you one-twelfth of the year. Even though we would say all the other history is white history, then I think our, our push should be to change all history, right? Um, and I, that's the same I, I would feel for, for black colleges. I... Um, let me think of other ways that I can fend people. I, um, um, 
<laughs> Teresa knows I think men are better than women at sports. All right? Okay? No. Um, here's the deal, man. Um, those are my opinions, and I have a lot of them. I, I, have, uh, I have things that I can get up here and say about race and sex, um, uh, things that I can say about socioeconomic differences. There, there are things, there are opinions, there are bents, there are proclivities that I have because I have been shaped. I have been shaped um, because of my upbringing, because of what I've seen in my life, and that's changed the way that I view this world, okay? And, 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 and it's, I think it's even most apparent, check it out. So when I was a, a kid, um, I hated cops, and I mean hated them. The, the cops to me were the ones um, that, that were taking our parents away to prison. The cops to me were the reason that we were going to foster care. The, the, the cops to me were, were the bad guys. Literally, my brother and sister would be, I can remember this, rooting for on wildest police stations for the guy to get away, rooting for him to get away. I remember my mom's boyfriend's brother watching us, and he's, he was on meth, kicking in the TV screen because we were watching cops and the cops let the dogs um, go at this man for far too long. And he's kicking the TV screen. Let him go. Let him go. And we're watching this. And, and, and I'm, geez, seven, eight, I, I, somewhere in there. That affects you. Like, right, you're watching this and you grow up hating them. And then suddenly um, the family that adopts me, my older brother now becomes a cop, right? And now suddenly everything that within me changes that I know about um, cops being the bad guy, I see Jim and I think, but he would never kill someone and he would never choke someone to death. He, he wouldn't shoot someone just because he wanted to. That, that's not within him. And now suddenly um, the way I'm viewing different things changes. Those are my opinions. Those are my bents, my proclivities. Here's why we need to start there when we have this conversation. You have the same bents. You have the same proclivities. You have the same ideas, the same knee-jerk reactions, but maybe just in different directions. And, and, and the reason we need to talk, and I need to talk to Christians specifically, is because our goal and our job as we continue to walk this thing out is, as Second Corinthians uh, would tell us that we are to take all thoughts captive, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. And it's always been used as this idea, if you're having lustful thoughts, take it captive. But if you read the context, it has everything to do with lofty opinions. There are opinions, and there, there are rulers of this world trying to implement things in the way that we think. And I take this idea of how I view police officers, and, and how I view women, and how I view um, race, and, and I look at all these things, and all the things that have shaped me, and I go, okay, but how do they conform to the cross? How do I take these lofty things, these things of the world, and I conform them to the cross? Because maybe some of the things that I just said, maybe they are right. But they're not right because I've said they're right. They're right because the Bible would say they're right. And maybe some of them are wrong. But check it out. They're not wrong because you think they're wrong. They would only be wrong if the Bible would say they're wrong. So maybe you don't like that I joke around or, or, um, or make the jokes that, that, that I do with, with uh, uh, my, my black brothers. Like, like maybe you don't like that. Maybe you don't like that I call my black brothers, right? Um, the, the, the idea is the relationship we have, we desperately know we love each other. And that's like we're in each other's weddings. And, 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 and I look at you and I go, listen, you may think that's wrong, but I'm looking at the scripture and, and I know um, beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's not a racist bone in my body. So um, actually, ironically enough, I'm going to say that everyone has a little bit of racism in a minute. But um, so, so, so he, here's, here's why it's important that we start there. The, the first thing that we're, we need to do um, when we talk about this is we need to have some honesty. We need to be honest about what we think. 
what we believe, and we need to be honest to go, man, I have these opinions, but I have to know that these opinions may be right and they may be wrong, but, but I am being conformed to the image of Christ, and these opinions have to be willing to go on the chop block. They have to. They, they have to be put on the cutting room floor if they're not godly. And, and, and you need to do this, some of you, man. And I'll specifically talk, talk to um, the, the white males, right? I'm a white male, um, the, the enemy of, of the media over the last year. Um, man, you more, more than most um, probably need to think through your, your thoughts. Um, here, here's the second thing that I, I think we need to do. Um, as we begin this conversation of race, uh, I, I have read, um, <laughs> I, like I said, pr- trying to prepare for this so much, um, I'm not just trying to sound smart, but a lot of books, probably a dozen books on this, um, countless blogs, watched, I don't know, maybe 30 sermons. And um, I had all these quotes, right? And I wanted to share all these quotes with you. And then I, I just like, I was uh, texting with Josh, emailing with Josh yesterday and just saying like, forget it. Like, I'm just going to give, there's a couple things um, that, that needs to be said. But there's this one quote that I think helps propel us in the conversation. Um, and I want to read it. It's um, from a foreign affairs, if you guys don't know what the foreign affairs um, magazine is, it's actually like a book. But um, in, in this foreign affairs um, issue in March and April, is called The Problem with Race. And um, in this issue, very profound, if, if you are interested, interested in knowing about like the history of racism, like how it began, not just, um, not just, uh, within America, but how we see it within the Western world. Um, I would strongly advise you pick that up. It's called uh, the problem, the trouble with race on the foreign affairs uh, issue of March and April. Um, and, and, uh, the man who kind of oversees these different authors who write in this, um, this big issue, um, opens up, his name is uh, Gideon Rose he, uh, he has this conversation that I, help, I, I hope helps us. And this is actually the only quote that I'm going to read today. Um, and, and I hope it helps you, you in some ways for at least to understand um, what we need to talk about before we get into our text this morning. Discussions of racial issues usually throw off more heat than light, which is absolutely true. I mean, I, I don't think I need to defend that. And too often assume that local distinctions and attitudes are universal and immutable rather than particular and contingent. So, so um, some big words. Let me, let, me, uh, let me break down some of these words so that we can all be on the same page. Can you put that uh, back up real quick for me, Tyler? Um, so we often assume that our local distinctions and attitudes, the way that we um, talk about race, is universal. That, that it's universal and immutable. Immutable is a fancy way to say unchangeable. That the way that we view certain things, race, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, whatever it is, um, we process them in our mind as if that's always, it's always been. We can look back in the 1300s and, and grab some answers. But, but Gideon Rose, in this um, long article, would argue that it's actually not, not true. They're, they're rather, we, we should see them as particular and contingent, meaning... That um, you right now live in a, um, the 21st century in America, and the way that you use certain terms when it comes to racism cannot be broadly used across history. The greatest example of this is the, the word slavery. Um, the word slavery is in the Bible. Uh, and not only that, God gives rules and how to deal with slavery. Now, the issue is, I mean, I had to teach about this in Tempe about eight months ago. When you hear the term slavery, you immediately go to colonial slavery. So, so we get up in arms about the Bible's teaching slavery. But the way the Bible is talking about slavery is not the way that you are talking about slavery. It's not even close to the same term. But you, 
seem to think that the way that you process race and, 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 and slavery, um, injustice like that, you, you make them universal laws. But, but when you deal with, with South Af- African slavery um, or the apartheid, when you deal with um, things that are going on in Europe, when you deal with Darfur, when you deal with things that happen in Rwanda, whatever it is, all these things are different. They're, they're not the same. So um, I say this because um, from honesty, we, we need to go to this little thing that, that we struggle with on Facebook um, and Twitter and having these conversations. We need to move to this little thing called humility because you have a very limited scope. I'll give you 100 years. If someone's 100 years old, there's one man. You know who he is, Jim Ellis, okay? Um, a, a hundred years old. I'll give you a hundred years on this earth, okay? Your hundred years of American living in this moment gives you very limited, a very limited scope, which you have a very limited knowledge of that limited scope, and you seem suddenly to be the guru of all that is racism. And it's important that we come to the table with humility. We need to understand that in this conversation, there needs to be insane amounts of humility. And if we are humble, then we can be honest. We can. I, I promise you, I ain't going to speak for all black cats in here, but let me be straight with you. Like, if, if you would be honest and you're struggling with different things that you have within you, proclivities, and you talked with, at least I can speak to Christian, um, the Christian black men and women that I know, they would be more than willing to have those conversations if you would be humble and honest about who you are. I guarantee it, man. Um. Because the reality is, and this is where we'll get into our text, um, I, I need to say this, uh, and this might be the obvious thing to say, right? And I don't want to just say it because it's going to get everyone fired up. But this is my, um, you don't know what it's like to be a black man in a predominantly white country, black woman in a predominantly white country. You don't know what it's like, you, the life you live, don't know what it's like to be a woman in a, con- in a, in a world that still in some countries you would not be allowed to vote. You, you, check it. you don't know what it's like to be um, a Mexican-American and watch. Listen, this is what's crazy because we're not processing this. Um, and, and watch a presidential hopeful, somebody who could be the president of the United States, call you and your family rapists, drug dealers, murderers, gangbangers. You don't know what that's like. You don't know that for that to sink in. And, and what, what's worse than to sit there and watch this Maybe pres- presidential hopeful, which obviously anyone's in a right mind think that Trump's going to win. But like, okay. But but the idea is he's running for president, right? And then watch the auditorium stand up and applaud. You don't know what that's like. You don't know what it's like to be Asian. You don't know what it's like to be from the Middle East. You you don't know what it's like. But but hear me when I say this. You, you also don't know what it's like um, if you're one of those things to be the white cop and worrying about doing his job because he's going to be the next YouTube sensation in a bad way. You don't know what it's like to be him either, or her either. You, you, you don't know what it's like, um, and hear me when I say this, to be the racist. To believe something so fervently because your dad literally beat it into your skull. You don't know that story. You don't know him or her. And so if I can just pastor you in a very lovingly anger way... Um, before you, you feel the need to jot all your thoughts down um, in, in what I would deem in some terms hatred um, towards whatever cause or however you would look at this until you are willing to sit at the table with someone not like you, the other, 
to get to know them and not because of a token way, but to build relationships with them, to, to see them for who they are, to understand the racist, to understand the black guy, to understand the, the white woman, to understand the Asian, to understand the Hispanic, who, whoever you need to, whoever you are around, to understand whatever thing you feel like you need to vocalize until you're willing to be involved and know them deeply, then may I say this as politely as I can, just keep your mouth shut and listen. Please. Um, so if that's not an encouraging way to start, I, I don't know what is. Um, so with honesty and humility, I'm going to ask you, as you've already opened up to Ephesians, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles very quickly to Genesis 11. We're going to get to Ephesians um, in a moment, but I need you to understand, uh, again, building our Christian worldview, how this thing starts. And I'm going to immediately jump to Genesis 11, and then I'm going to break down this whole history and um, how we can understand race as Christians, and then we're going to do the implications. And yes, we'll talk about some of the Baltimore and, and New York and California. We're going to talk the, the Ferguson stuff. You know, but, but in the end, what we need to do as Christians is kind of come at this baseline foundation of what Jesus has done and what he continues to do, and then we can respond to that. But first, we have to get in how we believe um, race has taken place um, and what the ultimate underlining tone issue is. So my, in, in a couple minutes, I hope that I can explain why you struggle with seeing things from a different race's perspective, Okay. I, I hope to, to, to give um, that answer right now. Um, this is in uh, Genesis 11. And if you don't know the story, God makes all men, we'll come back to this, all men and women in his image. Genesis 3, God choose, or man chooses not God. And because of that, man becomes man-centered and not God-centered. And the first reaction, the next chapter, literally in Genesis 4, is a fruit of that, that, that cause. There's the cause, and now we're going to see the effect of that. And God looks at two men, asks one of these men, hey, Where's your brother? The guy says, am I my brother's keeper? He's asking rhetorically to say, I'm not my brother's keeper. I don't know, nor do I care. But in, in the, the answer ultimately is actually the opposite. You, you should care because you are your brother's keeper. But because of the fall, Cain can't, seal the, uh, can't see this. And so he is, he's broken. And see, we see this first dissonance between um, uh, man versus man. Now, because man is self-centered, because he, he has turned the arrows in on himself, um, God ultimately looks and he sees that the earth is the, the, uh, continual, continually wicked. He looks at the thoughts of men in, in uh, Genesis 6 and sees that the thoughts of men are continually evil and he floods the earth. Well, as soon as that's over, we see that sin seeped in ultimately still. And as it seeped in, we get the first kind of discussion about race. Now, here's what you need to understand when we begin to talk about race. This is a big deal. Um, the Bible does not see races. From the Bible's perspective, it does not use the term races. According to the Bible, there is one race, and you can do a word search all you want. There's one race. It is the human race, and there are different ethnos, ethnicities, or the term nation in the Old Testament and New Testament. There are variations of that one race. Now, this is a big deal because some of us are coming to the table divided, but the Bible comes to the table on this discussion in unity. It's coming to the table assuming you understand there is one race. There is one race, and there are different ethnicities within that race, okay? That's huge for us. Now, um, what's happened, because man is self-centered and, and um, ultimately wants to do what he wants to do, and again, has turned the arrows on himself, we get this story. Um, Genesis 11, verse 1. 
Some of you are familiar with this story, so I'm going to kind of breeze through it. I wish I could spend more time, but, but I can't. Now, the whole earth had one nation and the same words. So um, it kind of sounds redundant, but I need you to understand just very quickly what that's saying. Well, I would say one language and the same words. It's saying like the same language and the same dialect. The Bible in this moment is emphasizing that there is a oneness in the way the people talked, acted, so on and so forth. Um, so uh, the same language. Uh, one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found the plain of the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitmen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we disperse all over the face of the whole earth. Verse five, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is the only, this is only the beginning to what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will not be and anything and nothing that they, they propose to do. Uh, will now be impossible for them. Sorry, verse 7. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let Let me summarize very quickly. So man comes together in pride, fueled by fear. Did, did, I need you to hear that very quickly. Let us make a name for ourselves. There's pride in pride, lest we disper- be dispersed over the face of the earth. So fear is motivating this pride. And because of pride, they build this tower. God, in, uh, which is hilarious, God says he had to come down from heaven. So man's like, look at our tower. And God's like, is there a tower down there? Right? Okay. So he goes down, he sees this gigantic tower, according to men, and he says, no, I don't like this. And he begins to have them speak in different languages so that they now cannot understand each other, right? So before everything was great, but before they're, they're building this, but, but here's what I need you to understand the overarching tone of this story, okay? Because of pride, motivated by fear, they cannot understand each other. This is the curse that, that, that pride has caused that God gave to man because of, of, of the sin in Genesis 3 and ultimately showing itself in pride. So, so, so hear me when I say this. It's because of fear-motivated pride. It's, it's because of that pride that, that we can't see each other eye to eye. Like racism is always going to be here until Jesus returns. There is always going to be inclinations within you, whether to view yourself differently or better, whatever it is, because of pride. And this is, a, this is a punishment. Now, you may not like that, but we're going to get to the, the story in a second. And here's our theology on race. So this is how it starts. God disperses all these nations. Literally, he sends them away. And now they go, and they have their own language. And now you have different dialects and so many thousands of languages, whatever it is. Um, so let's rewind the story and talk about how was it from the beginning, and how is God going to make it in the end, because then we can get to an answer. So here's what we know. I just want to establish very quickly what we know. We know, according to the Bible, um, And according to the world we live in, our culture, there is disconnect, right? Some of you ain't seeing it from somebody else's perspective over and over and over and over again. Some people feel unheard. Some people feel like no matter what they say, it it gets twisted, whatever it is. And there's all this disconnect. And that is ultimately, we can't see each other eye to eye because of pride, okay? Now, if that's the case, has it always been like that? And of course, you know the answer is no. 
Um, and so I'm going to give us this, this theology of race, and I'm going to kind of stop and touch on a couple things that um, I, I believe are ultimately ridiculous and the Bible would push against, um, and I hope this helps. So let's go to Genesis 1. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to give you a synopsis very quickly. You know God makes it in 1 through 25, verses 1 through 25. God makes all things good. He ends up making man. He says in verses 26 through 28, he makes man in his image, male and female. He made them in his image. In the image, he made them. So God makes all all these nations, now we can look forward and understand, because I love what it says, and in, in, if you're still there in Genesis 11, you can look at this. They all had one language, and this was the beginning of what they all do. And he starts with this, behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. Why would God declare that? Because there are different, what it looks like, types of ethnos, different types of people. They have united together. So there are clearly, as God talks about in Genesis 1, different races being created. Now, let's stop real quick and talk about a cultural norm that is not helpful. Um, so, so, so uh, I think some of you have used this term, and I'm just going to try to defend that the Bible would actually speak against this term, um, and, I, and I don't think it's helpful, and it's the term colorblindness. Um, I, I don't think the Bible is pro-colorblindness. Um, and, and, and here's what I mean. Um, so uh, we, I have a, a friend, uh, Linda. She's in ministry in, in uh, downtown Phoenix, the, the ghetto in downtown Phoenix. Uh, old lady, has cancer. She, uh, we, I got to sit in a room with, with four or five other guys, and we sat and just got to talk to her about her story. And she had worked another job because the hood couldn't support her. And, um, and so in retiring from this other job um, from 40 years, she was giving a retirement speech, and in her speech she mentioned how she was a black woman. And one of her coworkers of 25 years after the speech came up to her and said, I, I didn't even notice you were black, you know? I didn't even notice you were black. And Linda said in that moment, she was really frustrated. This man that she had actually liked and got along with in a cordial way, suddenly she found, like, disdain towards him. Like, what, what do you... What do you you, what do you mean you didn't notice? I would, like, what are, you trying, what, what are you trying to put up there that you don't know? And, and, and the reason I don't think colorblindness is, is helpful um, is because what we do is we automatically tend to make God, um, in looking at this one race, to see this race as a monolithic eth- ethnicity. And what I mean by that is when we look at the way that um, black men and black women, Hispanic men and Hispanic women, Asian men and Asian women, Middle Eastern, white, whatever it is, you look at all of those people and they are all together make up the image of God. Now, if we're colorblind, we don't see the beauty of the image. Let me give you a perfect example. Kids are beautiful at doing this, okay? Um, kids ain't got no problem calling anybody anything, right? Okay? So um, my kids are still young, and uh, my middle son is Titus, and he, uh, <laughs> he just don't care, um, okay? And if he sees someone too short, he's going to point, and I'm like, no, 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 no. And look, look, he's short. Um, if he's too tall, okay? Well, um, Jude uh, is, is living with us. He's, he's a, um, a black man. Where are you at, Jude? And he's single. Raise your hand, Jude. Jude, you're single. Okay. <laughs> um, Jude, Jude's living with us right now, right? And uh, uh, Titus is sitting in Jude's lap, and uh, they were watching something. And Titus looks at Jude, and he, and he looks and goes, and he goes, your gums are like chocolate. I want to eat them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I was like. Okay, so, so, right? Now listen, listen, listen. Here's why this is important, right? Um, man, if you look at that, if you hear that and you go, that's, that's not right. Like, here's, here's, the, here's the reality of this. And, man, this is where I might get in trouble. But there needs to be a freedom. Um, and the only way we're going to get past this is, is we, if we want to say, like, we're a post-racial um, culture, which obviously isn't uh, uh, true. But if we're ever going to find the freedom in this, there needs to be um, room and freedom to celebrate 
that, right? Titus, every day for all of his life, has looked into the mirrors. He's brushed his teeth, and he has not seen, seen dark gums, right? And so he looks at Jude, and he sees something different. Now, immediately you go, well, that's not, he shouldn't. What do you mean he shouldn't? Like, is there something wrong with having black gums? Like, are you crazy? No. Like, this is, this is insane, and the Bible celebrates that. So, so I think because of fear, we have resorted to colorblindness. And I could see why we've done that. I just want to see them for who they are. And, and I think there is, yes, that, that's true. But, but a part of who they are is recognizing the, their, their ethnos, their ethnicity. This would be like talking to someone who is 10 feet tall and just staring at their kneecaps as you talk to them. This is, yeah, you're talking like, and instead of moving, adjusting your head to talk to the man, you're just talking to his kneecaps. This is, this is, this is crazy. No, 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 listen. We celebrate who they are and how God has made them. Listen, because it's a reflection of God. That, that's reflecting who God is, right? Like, like you're tripping. I just, like if you think God has blue eyes and like this is the obvious, I don't want to be like, I'm getting all fired up so I can say obvious stuff and yay, okay? But like he just doesn't. If Jesus was anything, he was way more Middle Eastern and he is the image of the invisible God. Like there's all these things we can go at, but the rea- reality of it all is, man, from Asians, Hispanics, blacks, whites, Middle Easterns, wherever we are, European, Romanian, all these things reflect who God is. And I don't think the proper response is colorblindness. Now, again, I can understand why we do that, um, but the reality is that's probably not the best way to approach it. Because um, I don't, I, God celebrates um, uh, nations. Now, now here's, here's the other thing. So we move from that moment of um, recognizing that, uh, that was just a side tangent, the colorblindness thing. We move from this moment of God um, creating all men equally. And then we've talked about this fall. But then here's something that happens. As the nations are spread out in the Tower of Babel, what we know happens is you have different ethnos, different um, uh, ethnicities, different nations, and God, for whatever reason, chooses one of those nations. Now, you need to understand, it was not because they were awesome that God chose this nation. He literally could have grabbed whatever nation he wanted, put them in the middle, and said, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. They could have been whatever color. It doesn't matter, because the reason they became his people, and the reason he was their God, had everything to do with faith and nothing to do with ethnicity. They were to be, to all the other nations, a symbol. So he could have grabbed a bunch of white people in a white nation and said, you are going to be my symbol. He could have grabbed black people. He could have grabbed whoever he wanted in that moment and said, you are going to be a symbol to save, uh, to, to, to be a reflection so I can save these other ethnos. He was using one ethnicity to reflect his image in that moment to the other ethnicities so that they can be drawn in. That, that, that's, you've got to understand, that's, that's like, paramount foundational for for old testament theology now obviously the jews tend to look at their um ethnicity and they see it more of a um race thing than a faith thing and they get lost in translation which is um cultural um part number two is helpful um and i know i'm going on tangents i don't know any other way to talk about all this than to go on some of these tangents um but the second thing that helps us see this is that that argument that God has chosen one nation and then there are these other nations has sometimes been used in regards to defending the fact that we should be against interracial marriage. Um, and, um, man, I, I think the underlining misnomer there and what you, you, you've kind of missed if you believe that is that it had nothing to do with the Jews, the Israelites in that moment, of being this ethnicity, not wanting to engage or take um, husbands for their sons and, and, or for their daughters and, and wives for their, their, their sons or, and, and, and engage and, and intermingle. It had nothing to do with their race, but it had everything to do with their faith. Every single time you read one of those encounters where God tells them not to go be with the Midianites, not to give your sons over to the Midianites for marriage, to 
daughters over to the, the Philistines, whatever it is, you'll see, and he says right after that, because they're going to follow their idols. It had everything to do with a faith thing. Now, I would argue, hear me out when I say this, because this is where I'm going to tie it all into Jesus, and we're going to get to our text. I would argue that interracial relationships not only are not biblical, but might be, um, I'm not going to say more biblical, because that would be insane, but um, are a better picture of what the Bible would actually draw us towards. And what I mean by that is, that if faith is the underlining tone, that we would say the same thing. If you're a Christian in here, man, it's really foolish to go out and date a non-Christian. Right? Like, we're not, we're not missionary dating. We're not Mormons. Like, you, you, don't, you, need, to, you, you, need, to, you need to date um, somebody of the same faith in that. And, and I think that the New Testament would argue for that. And it's the same in the Old Testament, right? You, you would engage of the, the same faith. And when a black man and a white woman or a Hispanic woman and a uh, white man or whatever it is, and how, however you want to mismatch whatever these things, you get to see ultimately how God is restoring things to the way they're supposed to be. Here, here's what I mean. Revelation chapter 7 would tell us that in the end, as, as Jesus comes on the earth and he says the old age is gone, the new age has come, um, as he looks and he says the kingdom of God is at hand, he's giving us images of this kingdom. And at the very end of this story, what we will come to find out is that every tribe and every tongue, this rainbow, this eclectic nature of people will stand before God and somehow sing the same song. God will restore all nations to a people under the banner of Christ again. That will happen. And for us as Christians to know that as a truth, to know that as a reality, frees us up to go, an interracial marriage glorifies God in that. Like, like to know that God is re- reuniting and restoring races. That's, that's beautiful. So that's, that's the second um, misnomer. So with all that said, I want to continue with our, our theology. So how does Jesus restore races? How do we, if pride is the thing that is, that is rubbing up against the reason we can't see each other eye to eye, um, how does Jesus do this? Um, Paul tells us about that. Um, I'm almost done rambling. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, and and I, I, uh, I want to unpack this text for us just a little bit. Um, and, and I hope this helps. Um, This is what it says in Ephesians uh, uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Uh, He says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you um, who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Let, let's stop real quick. I need you to understand the man who's writing this, his name's Paul. Um, he was a recovering racist. And he um, absolutely hated anyone who was not Jewish. And th- those are Gentiles. He is a Jewish man and uh, he, he disdained them, despised anyone who is not a Jewish man. Well, God saves this man. And as he saves him, he goes city to city and uh, he does two things immediately when he comes into the city. He goes to the synagogue where all the Jews are, the people he knows. And then he goes to the places, whether the marketplace or the Morris Hill or whatever it is, to where all the Gentiles are. 
And he, he goes after both of these groups and he gets them together. And this causes insane amounts of problems for him. Because now suddenly um, he recognizes it would be easier to have an all Jewish church. Because the way the Jews eat are the same way that the Jews eat. And the way that the Gentiles eat are the same way that the Gentiles eat. And the way they see things and the way they see. But, but what he does is he brings them all together under the banner. And I quote, he says this. Because of, by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. So what Paul sees is Jesus came and he saw this wall that divided these races, the Jew and the Gentile, and Jesus abolished that law. Now, in abolishing that law and taking that down, he created this new man. Now, Paul knows this, and so he wants to take both sides of the party, and work in this new man. Now, there's actually two words for uh, the word new in Greek. And this word, one word has to do like if you you saw a a new car, something that has been seen. But there's this other word, protos. It's where we get our word prototype from. it, it, It means something that we've never seen before. That Jesus is making something that, that we've never seen before. We, we look back in our history and all we've seen is brokenness between Jew and Gentile. All we've seen is disdain between other races and ethnicities. But Jesus comes and he, he takes that dividing wall and he ultimately abolishes it to make this new one man. But, but there's problems, right? Because now the Jews are looking at the Gentiles and they're saying, ah, you need to change the way you eat. You, you need to be circumcised. You need to follow these ordinances. You need to do whatever you're doing. And Paul, who knows those things very well, over and over combats this idea. And he goes on to say this. So he says in verse 18, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So there's this new man, no matter what race you are, this new man Verse 19, that first word is huge. So, so, therefore, it's a, it's, it's a word that says in response to what we've just talked about. So, because that's a reality. So, then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are built uh, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, so, so this is, oh, this is awesome, okay? What Jesus does is he says, the dividing wall is gone. Now we have some issues. But in the midst of those issues, um, we see that this man thinks this way and this woman thinks this way and, and, and we're processing things differently. But ultimately what needs to happen is, and I love this language, we are the household of God to grow together. This is Big time. A uh, book called Right Color, Wrong, uh, right Color, Wrong Culture, written by Brian Loritz. Phenomenal book on this very idea is how we as Christians can do this. Um, and, and this is where we get into a little bit of um, uh, the, the white guy not understanding sometimes and being uh, the predominant voice in our culture. Because, um, listen, when we grow together, what, what ultimately the kingdom of God is going to look like is a beautiful display of every ethnicity um, vocalizing its praise with other ethnicities. But, but what we find right now, um, and I'm going to speak directly to the church, is we have, and I know this is overused, probably still the most segregated day of, of the week is, is still Sunday morning. It's still the case. Well, why? Well, why? When I met with um, uh, Pastor Duane, he's a, a pastor in Peoria, off the 17 in Peoria, and we were talking on Thursday. Um, and this idea, like this, this idea is, is, is mind-boggling that we still have to use this reference of black churches and white churches, and it's this different church, right? Because, hear me, this is what's happened. Um, we have Jews and we have Gentiles, and Jews like the music like this, 
Okay, word up. Any black churches? No? Okay. Um, I was Assemblies of God, so we will get serious right now, right? I had to preach at a black church last year, and I was like, where have you been all my life, right? <laughs> Yelling? Um, okay. Here, here's the reality. So, so this race or this ethnicity likes the music this way, and this race likes the music this way. And, and, and this race likes uh, uh, the, the way that we would do uh, preaching this way or giving this way. And because of traditions, this is maybe how uh, this race would like this. And what we have is we've created. But what Paul is telling us is Jesus should ultimately um, be pushing you towards growing together. Which means, hear me out, white dudes in the room, black dudes in the room. Well, actually, just everyone. I don't know why I'm going through. I'm not going to name every race. That's crazy. Okay. Um, Everyone brings to the table their preferences and goes, ultimately, what's happening is we're growing towards Christ. And as we're growing towards Christ, we're growing together. Now, now this is hard, right? Because um, Josh probably sang music. Um, when, I, when, I, when, I got, uh, when I was a, a kid, um, I grew up, so Tupac, Biggie, um, best song ever, Desiree, you got to be straight, be straight with you. Um, nobody, okay. Um, I already did the honest moment. I'll stop. Um, but but when, I, when I became a junior high, I started to listen to MXPX, Sum 41. Um, I don't know why. Yeah, it's just my, the friends I said, you know. So, um, so I started getting all, all this different. So I had this music, kind of how I understood music. Well, when I got saved, the music was terrible, all right? All the Christian music was awful, okay? Um, but the, the church that we went to had Israel Houghton, if you know who he is, as the worship leader. And then Ricardo, uh, Ricardo Sanchez, and some of you guys just know him as Ricardo, as the worship leader right after him. And then right after him was this guy named Adam, Adam Rainey. So it went from this, um, Israel's kind of like this black, white dude. Uh, Ricardo's Hispanic. And then Adam Rainey's like this white dude who just sings like an angel, um, which I mean by that he sings like a black dude. Um, <laughs> dang it. I was trying not to do any racist joke. I'm not, I'm going to get in so much trouble. I'm sorry, John. Um, okay, so, so here, here's my point. Um, I listened to gospel music, and I loved it. So finally, I'm listening to it, but I'm listening to, like, gospel music. It's a new season. I'm like, dang, okay? And I'm, like, getting at it, right? Well, well, well um, that's like the charismatic world. When I got introduced to the reformed world, the music was way more subdued. And, 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 and the truth is, it was way more thoughtful. It, it was way more, um, so John, or, uh, Josh was up here and he said it's very wordy. It was, it was wordy. It wasn't as dynamic. It wasn't as clappy. I mean, you heard us. We tried to clap. We didn't even know what to do. Okay? Um, so so, so there, there's, this, there's this preference. And what I had to do in that moment, right, is recognize the beauty that, that, that is going on within that worship style. That means I had to set aside some of my preferences. Now, unfortunately, what's happened a lot is... Um, Anybody who is of color is usually the one setting down their preferences. When they walk into the church, the, the white church, they're, they're the ones usually, for the most part, and, and, and being black isn't monolithic, it's not everyone is the same, but for the most part, um, they're usually the ones setting down their preferences. And so the things that they tend to enjoy a little bit more, the, the white, all the white people like it because that's what they know, and they're never setting down preferences. And what we're told in this moment is everyone needs to be setting down preferences. And so this is helpful for us as a church because no one should leave for the worship style. And I would just challenge you, if you're black in here or you're Hispanic in here and you have, listen, um, man, Jackie Robinson, that beast, like be the first to come in and like help us. And this is something that Vince and I, Vincent and I have, have talked about over and over. Like we, we got to figure out how to navigate these waters, right? Because um, some white people do need to be uh, a little uncomfortable, right? 
and, and, and some, some uh, uh, black people do need to continue to push through to, to help create that uncomfortability so that we are a collective voice in displaying the kingdom of God and ultimately growing together in Christ. This is the beauty. This is what Jesus has done. I'm going to finish by just saying this. I'm going to read this again because I think it's helpful. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom, hear this, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. When this is done right, it absolutely displays God. A dwelling place for God. Um, okay, so now that I've talked about the theology of race and I have very limited time, what are the implications of this? I mean, what do we as Christians do? How do we respond to the Trayvon Martins? How do we respond to... Um, New York or St. Louis or California. I mean, geez. Um, even watching one of the most recent videos, watching this dude, he's, and I forget where it was, but where he's, uh, he, he gets pulled over, won't give him his driver's license, and you've probably seen this, and he goes to pull, drive away, closes his door, he's wearing this red hat, and the cop just shoots him, right? And you watch that, and you go, and like, I don't, like, what do I do with this? How do I, how do I handle that? Um, I want to give us a little bit of direction in, in understanding how to do this well. Um, and before I do that, I want to give you some resources because if you are truly interested in navigating some of these waters, um, there's a book called The New Jim Crow that was very helpful because I think the first thing that you need to recognize for the most part, if, if you are a white male, I'm a white male, um, you, you do need to recognize that there is injustice going on. And I think immediately your push is to say that there's not. Um, and believe me, I understand. I know what you mean. I understand what you're saying. But you, 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 do, you have to recognize that there is. And if nothing else, that you would reach out and begin to see some of the things that are going on. The New Jim Crow, um, written by Michelle Alexander, is a great book. It's very dense and deep, but if that's something you're interested um, in doing, I'd read that. Christina Cleveland is um, a phenomenal resource. She is very helpful. She's been navigating these water for, waters for years. Um, but but here, here's where I want to start. I want to use a couple terms that we've heard um, in a lot of these conversations. I want to define them, and then I want us to talk about how we can uh, walk away from this and then hopefully um, finish. And, and I hope, uh, which I'm assuming you have a million questions that you, are, uh, you feel free to ask them through email or come up afterwards. Um, here, here's where I'm going to start. Um, you've probably heard this term white privilege a lot. And um, uh, what do we as a church do with this idea of white privilege? Well, the, the reality is... Um, it's not, there's always privilege. So, so you recognize that, right? Hopefully you do recognize that there is always privilege. In every culture of all time, there has always been privilege. From another group of people to another, that's always been the case. And it's just because in this moment, we're using the term white privilege, the, 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 our skin color, to define that privilege. But the reality is there is all types of privilege. Uh, I, I want to give you, to, to be helpful, a very distinct definition of white priv- what white privilege is so we can kind of understand um, what this looks like. This is what it is. It is a term for so- sociological um, privileges that benefit white people in Western countries beyond what is commonly experienced by non-white people under the same, and social, the same social, political, and economic circumstances. So, so long story short, white people have a tendency to thrive easier. They get a little more sun. They get a little more water. Whatever it is, they grow a little bit better um, than anyone who is of color. The, uh, Demeter would give me a great example of this from, from a guy here, and I would even add to it. The West, best way to, to understand white privilege is a white guy gets on a bike and, and does a 10-mile race on this bike ride, and he takes this certain path, okay? And he takes this path, and when he takes this path, there's a wind behind him, and it's just brushing him. And, and it's, it's this tailwind, and he's flying up and down. He's going this path, and he's done a 10 miles, and he hits this amazing speed, and he has this awesome time. 
Well, the next day, let's say a Hispanic uh, uh, a guy comes and he gets on his bike. And as he gets on his bike, he's going to do the exact same trail, the exact same race on just a different day. But on that day, the wind is against him and he has a worse time. Now, white privilege in that moment basically looks and goes, there are systems that are bent against. Now, now hear me. Um, I know that some of you are automatically going to knee-jerk against that, but, but the facts are just, and again, man, the new Jim Crow has helped us. Uh, uh, she gives a great example of this, um, which now has been used over and over in all types of uh, debates and topics. Even Christina Cleveland had used this in a sermon that I listened of hers. But um, there's a great example of this that um, uh, uh, a, college, a college in Chicago, um, some college in Chicago, I forget the name of the college, but they had basically taken... Uh, 3,000 resumes, and they'd taken these 3,000 resumes, and they took them out, sent them out to all the people that were hiring for that type of job, okay? And when they took out these resumes, all they did was change the names to four different names on these resumes. I wrote them down so it would be helpful. They, two predominantly white names, Emily Walsh and Brendan Baker, and then they put on two of the other ones, very African names, African-American names, Lakeisha Washington and Jamal Jones, right? Okay? So they sent out these, uh, the same resume, all the same uh, wording on everything's the exact same the pay, like it's all the same deal just the names are changed and what they found when they sent these out when they got back um that the the, the white people the 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 brendans and the emilys of the world got a call back 50 percent uh got a call back 50 percent were more likely 50 percent more likely to get a call back than the other two so um to say it in another way um it took 10 call or 10 resumes to send out for brendan to get a call back but it took 15 resumes for jamal to get a call back do you understand so so now listen here's the reality like that's just it okay now now you go like oh yeah that's the world so so now listen i can go and try to triumph like racism isn't dead but the reality is there are systems and structures still in place that still push against that okay those those are facts now i um, I don't want to give a million different other examples, but I'm going to try to stay on task. Here, here's my point. Um, we have this as, I'll, I'll say this, I have this as, as a white male, right? But, but listen, I, I get a unique opportunity to be a pastor in America right now to tell every single person in this room, white, black, it don't matter. Everyone has this with someone else. You have a platform. You have a privilege. You have power that someone else doesn't have. When I go and drive into Home Depot and I see the man who's doing day labor, he may be 50 years old. He's, he's a, a dude from Mexico. He's doing day labor. He's got a family of three, maybe like me. Um, he's going to do day labor all day. And I roll in with my 2003 Camry. It's not the nicest car, but I roll in. Um, I will go back to my house. I will be able to pay my mortgage. Um, and he is maybe twice as old as me. Um, and the only reason I am farther ahead in life is because I was born here. That's it. That's it. That's the only difference. So, so you tell me, if you're him, if you're him, tell me you don't feel like the odds are stacked against you. Now, you could say, well, if you just work hard enough, yes. Yes, if they work hard enough, they could do something. But you don't have to work as hard. So for you to turn your head and down over and, and look at him and say, well, if you just work hard enough, seems to be anti-gospel. Because the big picture of Jesus is exactly that, that Jesus, in all power, looking down on all men, comes down, he incarnates himself as a man, relinquishes power over and over and over again. He gives it to widows. He gives it to people who are, who are filled with demons. He gives it to the broken. He fights the Pharisees because they continue to push back against this. This is our call. If we are to grow together, our response as Christians is to recognize the brokenness, to see this in what's called a social imagination, to see that all the systemic brokenness that we see in this, and to go, 
man, that's not right. And, and I need to, to do something. I need to relinquish some power. Now, here's um, the hardest part of this conversation. This is where I'll finish. Um, how do you do that? How do you do that? And nobody has an answer to it. You know, the church hasn't figured this out. How do we relinquish power? How, how do we, okay, because this is the beauty of the gospel. Because there's not an X, Y, and Z to this thing. So, so, so here's what I mean. Um, you got to figure that out. You need to recognize the brokenness that is around you, the systemic issues that are around you, and you need to do that well. Now listen, there are big things that I believe God is doing right now in the world of government that we want to be a part of. But listen, you want to tackle the big things, but you, you don't want to let them in your living room. Like, like you want to love from afar. Yeah, okay. But, but you, don't, you don't want to engage in them on a personal level. So, so the reality is, as Jesus is growing us together, that we would lay down our preferences, that we'd see this with wisdom, um, that we would know and understand that ultimately God is um, eclectic in, in giving us uh, humanity because it reflects his beauty so well. And that when somebody else who is in the image of God is suffering in one way or the other, is if there is something against him, then we who are in the body of Christ, and this is, man, hear me, this is why I feel like um, black or white, we should, we should lament over um, what happened in South Carolina, and I don't want to say more, but there's something that as the bloodline of Jesus, as we come together as Christians, we go, man, that's my brother or sister. Like we're not defined in that moment just by like I'm grabbing onto my race, but as we come together, we go, how can we fight this together? And, then that, and, and, and that's where it becomes real messy, and I don't have an answer to that, guys. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I don't think, I think you would know. You would see these things. You would know how to address these things. But I, I will say this. Um, I know that it starts with relationship. It's super hard to hate somebody who, is, uh, who you're friends with. <laughs> it's super hard. It's super hard suddenly um, saying all your little racist side comments about immigration or black people, whatever, it becomes real difficult when you're friends with a lot of um, Mexican-Americans and African-Americans. It becomes real difficult. So I would just challenge you, in the midst of all this race, let's not get caught, in the, um, get caught up in choosing the, the black side or the cop side because the reality is there are black cops, right? A buddy is a black cop, and he's, feels, he was, he's been told a couple times now that he's a traitor against his race. This is crazy, man. This is crazy. This is, there is injustice, and as Christians, we should see that injustice, and we should tackle it, okay? Um, I have a million other things that I'd say, but I'm out of time. Um, I wish I could say more. If you have questions, please feel free to, please feel free to uh, email me. I know that um, a lot of the leaders, I think, can help in some of this, um, but for now, we'll leave it at that, and uh, let me pray.